Welcome everyone to Spaces with Josie. I am your host, Josie, the redheaded libertarian. Can everybody hear me all right? Throw up your emojis down there at the bottom, heart with a plus sign. Wonderful. Great, thank you. And if at any point you can't hear me or you can't hear my guests or any of our speakers during this space, go ahead and leave the space and then come, come back and that should correct the problem. And this goes for my guest as well as any of my speakers. I'm thrilled to have with me tonight businessman and entrepreneur and 2024 presidential candidate, first time ever millennial to run for Republican nomination for president, Vivek Ramaswamy. Welcome, Vivek. Good to be on. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good. Wonderful. Good. Oh, great. Yeah, you've been a busy guy lately. I'm really glad that you were able to make it on my show. Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, I'm a big fan of your voice. And so when you, uh, when you reached out, I didn't want to say no. So oh, it's good to be here. I appreciate you. Thank you. Is there anything you want to add to my spiel before we dive in? No, I mean, I think we're looking forward to a good conversation for uh, for the opening part of this, and I'm, I'm ex been excited to catch up. Great, wonderful. All right, so Ukraine versus Russia. Yeah. <laughs> Azerbaijan versus uh, Armenia. China versus Taiwan. Israel versus Palestine, Hezbollah, and Lebanon. The Iranian regime, Turkey, Egypt, Sudan, and all being drawn into Palestine's defense. The U.S. and NATO saber-rattling against Iran, Russia, and Syria allied with Iran. And now today's hospital bombing is just suffocating in the fog of war. So the potential for a global conflict has not hit these heights since the Second World War. And America first has really never been so important. So Vivek Ramaswamy, can we avoid World War III? I think we can, but the natural collision course we're headed on isn't great. I mean, the truth of the matter is we are dangerously close to large-scale conflicts in different parts of the world where if we're not careful, if we follow the siren song of continuing to escalate each of the situations in different parts of the world in a way that doesn't advance American interests, then I do think the risk is significant. It is increasing. I mean, it's, it's I would by no means say it's likely right now, but it is far more than zero. And I think that that's unacceptably high. And so my foreign policy agenda as the next president is pretty clear. Mm -hmm. Avoid World War III, declare economic independence from China in particular, which is, I think, a main risk for the United States, and then protect our own homeland in this country, which is something we're doing a disastrous job of right now. And the irony is that we have, for so long, fought wars in other parts of the world, from Iraq to Afghanistan, spending $6 trillion of taxpayer money, thousands upon thousands of innocent Americans' lives sacrificed over the same period that we have actually failed to secure our own homeland from a cyber defense, super EMP defense, basic border defenses, nuclear missile defenses here at home, that I think that gets the priorities backwards. And so now is a moment that I think more than ever we need to use the lessons of other parts of the world in Israel most recently to remind ourselves that if that can happen in a place like Israel, that can happen right here at home. And the top job of the U.S. government and the U.S. president in leading the executive branch of the government is to protect Americans on the American homeland. So and the fact of the matter is we're doing the opposite through actually escalating, for example, if we want to start with Russia, Ukraine, I can explain why I think that is heading in the wrong direction yes, and please. risks war at a time we should be avoiding it. Absolutely. 
So why do you think that, why do you think this is happening? Why, why do you think it's happening? I mean, this trajectory is happening. This timing is happening. Do you feel like, I mean, not to be conspiratorial about it or anything, but do you feel like there's like a higher power that needs this to happen? Or is this a coincidence that all of these, these things are happening at the same time and kind of all pointing in the same direction? Well, look, I think that there's a combination of reasons why, but one of the reasons why we see what's going on in Russia and Ukraine is actually a problem of our own making in the United States. There's a lot of factors that lead to it. One of them, though, was our own weakness here at home when it came to energy supply. The U.S. was a net exporter of energy for as recently as 2019 and for years leading into it. We have produced energy here at home. When we stop producing energy, that increased dependence on places like Russia, that in turn gave Russia a stronger hand to be able to make a decision they otherwise wouldn't have made if they didn't have the economic leverage to do it. Put yourself in Putin's shoes. If you know the West relies on you for oil and gas, but the West relies on you in part because they've constrained and hampered their own pr- ability to produce because of the you know ESG movement, I sometimes joke that stands for export Soviet gas. <laughs> well, that's actually given Russia greater leverage to go after Ukraine. That's step one of the process. But step two is that in many ways, we have also been adopting policies in this country that have escalated that situation to a place where it should have never gone. That's the United States and the West more generally. Think about the U.S.'s role, Victoria Nuland and others' calls that expressly played a role in spawning the Euromaidan protests that effectively shook up Ukraine back in 2014. The U.S. expressly played a role in that, which created a lot of the instability that led now nearly a decade later to Russia increasingly asking for assurances that NATO would not admit Ukraine to NATO, which NATO and the U.S. refused to provide. Angela Merkel making disastrous comments, reinforcing that, saying that the Minsk Accords ending some of those 2014 conflicts were just a matter of biding time. The U.S. continuing to arm Ukraine to the teeth. Yes, that gets then Putin, especially at a time when he has the economic leverage to do it, to invade Ukraine. So in many cases, this is a consequence of failed U.S. policy. I put most of that at the feet of Democrats, but it's really not a particularly partisan divide. It's a bipartisan establishment in our foreign policy regime that has created the conditions for inviting more of this war. Now, whether you want to ascribe cynical motivations and say that was purposeful, or whether you think it's just a broken worldview that's addicted to conflict, either way, it's bad. But that's exactly an example of how we got to exactly where we are with Russia, Ukraine. You want to talk about Azerbaijan, Armenia, very similar situation. How does Azerbaijan have the ability to steamroll through Nagorno, you know, let's just say the Nagorno-Karabakh region, which is the Armenia-adjacent autonomous region since 1994? It's because the United States has been propping up Azerbaijan, special exemptions to transfer military equipment and military resources to Azerbaijan, buying oil from Azerbaijan, and otherwise lobbied by Azerbaijan, and this is the underbelly of all of these pro-war policies are... In the case of the Azerbaijan instance, it is a lobbying effort in the United States that is incredibly effective. The likes of the Podesta group, founded by John Podesta, others in Hillary world and Barack Obama world, multiple lobbying organizations propping up the goals of the Azerbaijan regime in the United States. Well, that puts Azerbaijan in a strong position to then steamroll through Armenia, a different part of the former Soviet periphery. So I could go on, but I would say the 
consistent pattern is these are policy choices aided by a form of special interest lobbying and corruption that lay the groundwork for bad U.S. policies that pave the way for actors ranging from Russia to Azerbaijan to take the steps that they do. In many cases, we would find ourselves almost funding both sides of a given war. Remember that when Russia then, in the early stages, invaded Ukraine, Biden was actually the one who was lobbying the EU against its ban on Russian oil imports at the same time that he was pumping tens of billions of dollars of our taxpayer money to Ukraine to fight Russia. So that's the ultimate irony on this, is that the U.S. taxpayer is left holding the bag at both ends of the spectrum. But my view is that we need to return to a foreign policy that is realist in nature. Avoid a lot of these good versus evil declarations that we make abroad, which a corrupt process from Azerbaijan to Ukraine has selective vision on who's on which side of good versus evil and leads us to make disastrous decisions that sacrifice American dollars. And if history is any lesson, lead to also inevitably sacrificing innocent American lives. That's not going to happen on my watch. I want to keep us out of that World War III and secure this homeland. That's what our foreign policy ought to look like. Absolutely. And Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution, as well as Article 4, Section 8, all speak about protecting the country from invasion. And this is something that not happened. We're, we're being invaded. They've declared an invasion in Texas. Um, so what would be your plan to, to, to fix this, to stop this invasion of our country? Well, look, I think that it's a weakness in our foreign policy that we're so prepared to use our own resources to protect against an invasion across somebody else's border halfway around the world as in Ukraine, but not willing to do that right here at home on our own southern border in the United States of America. That's a mistake. And so I've been to both in the last week and a half. I've been to both the northern border and the southern border wide open in both directions. We have an invasion across both. The southern border is more drastic today, but the northern border is wide open and vulnerable for the future. And we're starting to see as many border crossings in the north illegally this January, more than the last 12 years combined, including convicts from other countries. This is a problem. How do we solve it? Well, look, I, I would encourage everybody to just for a second, put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's looking to come to this country and enter the United States illegally. It's a rational thinker. What are they going to think? What is the cost of coming? What is the probability of success of being able to enter? And then what's the upside once you actually do enter? That's the math they're doing right now. And right now, let's go through each element. The cost is relatively low. A lot of the barriers created in Central America or other countries in the Darien Pass and otherwise, those don't exist. What's the probability of success? I saw it with my own eyes at both borders. In the northern border, wide open. It's hiking trails between the U.S. and Canada. Relatively good hiking trails. I actually felt like I was on vacation uh -huh. going on one of those hiking trails. Mm -hmm. On the southern border, I watched multiple people in the short time I was there regularly just crossing as though it was normal activity. And by the way, in many cases, Customs and Border Patrol effectively helping them complete the last leg of their swim across the Rio Grande or their walk across the Rio Grande. So in those cases, we have to, people see a low probability, a high probability of success. And then once they come here, as soon as they just check the box saying they're seeking asylum, it could be years before they're even called back. And even if they are called back to court, they don't show up, the payoff is high. So what are the best border policies? First, increase the cost of coming. No more aid to Central America or to other countries. But that's pretty simple because we're going to withhold that aid 
at least unless and until they're doing their job of closing things like the Darien Pass through Central America and otherwise. You want to go to the probability of success. I think it is perfectly legitimate to use our own military to send a signal and seal our own southern border. Use aquatic barriers in the Rio Grande. Those are mobile. Those are cheap. Those are effective in addition to just this traditional and conventional wall. And then you want to think about reducing the payoff we have to of being here. We have to take away those incentives that we create in the first place in our own homeland. One way we do that is by eliminating federal funding of those sanctuary cities. Another way we do that is by eliminating birthright citizenship for the kids of illegal immigrants, which the 14th Amendment never envisioned. And I believe on firm legal reading of the 14th Amendment, and I think that there's a federal appellate court that would, has at least the one appellate court that is held on this matter agrees with me on it, Judge Posner and otherwise, that that does not apply to the kids of illegal immigrants in this country. So it's got to be a portfolio approach, increase the cost of coming, reduce the probability of success, and reduce the payoff of being here. That's the best border policy. We're going to be able to solve this problem very early in my first term. But the issue is it's not an engineering challenge, right? We pretend like this is a technical challenge. It's not. The country that put a man on the moon can absolutely figure out how to do the basic things that I've just described here. It's a question of political will and fortitude. That's really what's missing. And I think we're going to be, we're going to be in the, you know, we're going to be in a very strong position if we bring the level of will needed to see these things through. Now, we're on a terrifying current trajectory right now towards World War III. Do you see a timeline, like when when we know we can stop it, when we know we can't stop it? What, what do you see from, from your observation of what's happening right now? Well, I think that, look, these things are difficult to predict on the timing. I mean, there's, once there's gunpowder in the air, the question is who lights the final match? I mean, I think when... Mm-hmm. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand was killed. Nobody predicted exactly what the consequences of that act would be, but the circumstances were already were already percolating for quite some time before then. So when I look at big risks across the landscape, the big risk that I see is the Russia-China alliance today. I mean, that is the one military alliance that outmatches the United States. Alone, neither one really, I think you can make an argument that neither one really does. But Russia has a larger nuclear stockpile than the U.S. Hypersonic missile capabilities ahead of the U.S. China has a naval capacity, arguably ahead of that of the U.S., and an economy that we depend on for our modern way of life. So that's a problem. And I think that the the fact that Russia and China are in an alliance with one another, the 2001 Treaty of Good Neighborliness and Cooperation, go beyond that, you have the... 2022 no limits strategic partnership that's a problem for the united states of america i think it's the single greatest military threat single greatest geopolitical threat that we face and yet the irony is that nobody in either party is really talking about it and the further paradox is that the policies that we've adopted in ukraine are driving russia further into china's hands look at vladimir putin arriving to meet xi jinping just yesterday Mm -hmm. this is a I think a, a single greatest leading indicator of the risks of World War III when you have those two nuclear superpowers allied and the United States driving them closer together. The other 
thing I worry about is this is the first time since 1972 that we have no nuclear non-proliferation agreement between the U.S. and Russia. Mm. And we have no red lines, no idea what the red lines are for Vladimir Putin in this conflict with Ukraine. Putin has now made clear numerous times he's willing to use whatever is required, including potentially tactical nuclear weapons in the context of Ukraine. That is a Rubicon we don't want to see crossed. And yet I think we are badly misfiring for a conflict that does not advance the U.S. national interest to further arm Ukraine to the teeth instead of asking how we can reach a reasonable deal that allows Ukraine to come out with its sovereignty intact, that, yes, would have some concessions to Russia, including, most importantly, a hard commitment that NATO will not admit Ukraine to NATO, but in return get something even greater, which is to say that we cause Russia to exit its military alliance with China. Mm. I actually think that now is an interesting window, maybe one of our last windows, to be able to do it because there are some cracks in that relationship. Recently, when Putin's been meeting with Xi Jinping, he's still afterwards, we'll see after this trip whether he does the same thing, sends arms to Vietnam and to India, both of which share a border with China. Putin doesn't like that very much. Why? Because they share a border with him. Mm -hmm. Russia has still blocked China's completion of a potentially important railroad that's economically important to northeast China to get to the ocean because Russian land stands in the way. So there are kinks in that armor. Now is our moment to potentially reverse that relationship, reopen some economic relations with Russia, reduce the incentive they have to economically depend on China, and use the Ukraine war and the end of it as a chip to be able to accomplish something of far greater value. Yet it's striking to me that nobody in the foreign policy establishment of either major political party is talking about it. And, you know, I think what what the other Republican candidates, many of them say, you know, the Nikki Haley's of the world have said to me, you know, you have no you have no foreign policy experience and it shows. My problem with the foreign policy establishment, like the Nikki Haley, is that these people do have foreign policy experience and it shows in their bank accounts. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you take just that individual in particular, making $8 million since her time from stepping in the short times and stepping down from ambassador to the UN, starting a military contracting business, joining the boards of Boeing. This is the cynical reason why I think you have many politicians who are pro-war is that there are people who make money off of it, incur status, accrue status on the back of it. And some of them just have muscle memory from Iraq and Afghanistan and 20 years of neoconservative dogmas in the Republican Party, they don't know how to do it any other way, which is why it's going to take someone, I think, from the next generation Mm -hmm. who cannot be captured by those same financial forces, and yes, who has an independent pro-peace perspective to lead with American interests in mind rather than a global hegemonic worldview of the modern globalist dogma in both parties. So people like Nikki Haley also have to sell this war to people like we need to be involved because of, you know, 40 dead babies or whatever it is. So countries experience at wartime an uptick in this propaganda. And this was the case in Massachusetts or in uh, America, too, as well as. um, So so this was the case in Massachusetts until Congress passed the Smith-Munt Act in 1948, which essentially banned foreign and domestic propaganda. However, the NDAA of 2013 repealed and replaced the Smith-Munt Act with the Smith-Munt Modernization Act. And this would go on to lift the domestic dissemination ban. So if you, Vivek, or anybody in this audience, think back to when you realized that the press was captured and shamelessly propagandized and the world kind of spiraled out of control, if you think back to that moment 
it was 2013. It was the emergence of Black Lives Matter when all of a sudden um, you realize the news was reporting with a with a very, very, very obvious bias. So, and and I mean the irony being Black Lives Matter we know today to be a scam. Um, but would you commit to reinstating the original Smith Munt Act? Do you believe that 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 limiting or ending or banning the propaganda that gets into our country will be a way to kind of stop amplifying these 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 wars well i do think that there's no silver bullet but am, but limiting the pro-war propaganda that comes into the country look i'm a free speech absolutist when it comes to people being able to express their own opinions as citizens here mm-hmm. but it's another thing for foreign paid propaganda or lobbying apparatuses to make a difference in the u.s china is a master of this using you know the Trojan horses of American institutions that they financially capture to advance their own agendas here. Lobbying the government is not a form of political expression if you're a foreign actor in this country. So I do think that there are sound limitations that would not infringe on free speech or the expression of opinion in this country. But I do think that it's also interesting that it is, just as a bridge to that issue, something that we as freedom-minded people on this, uh, you know, maybe presume that I speak for a lot of us here, is that it's in times of crisis and times leading up to war that free speech and open debate become the most important. And one of the things you saw in the lead up to the war in Iraq that we, I think many of us correctly regret today, I was against it then, I'm against it now, but one of the things you saw in the lead up was very little tolerance for dissent. So what you saw in the post 9-11 era. And I worry we're seeing the beginnings of that right now in the United States, very little tolerance for the expression of opinions that are contrary to the dominant, effectively pro-war foreign policy view that has pervaded our establishment. It's another telltale sign. You know, as I said, during the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, we wouldn't have locked down those schools if you had been allowed to openly debate whether you Mm -hmm. wanted to lock down those schools. We would have known that the likely origin of the pandemic was a lab in China if you had been allowed to say, at least somebody allowed to express the opinion that it likely came from a lab in China. Well, today, I worry, and in multiple circumstances now, in multiple parts of the world as it relates to this conflict, that unless you're coming down on the hostile or pro, pro-escalation pro side of, of many of these conflicts, we are seeing a culture of dissent that's disappearing and a culture of conformity that's replacing it. And that, too, is one of the telltale signs of ending up in conflicts that do not advance the American interests. And if we do not learn from history, we are doomed to repeat many of those mistakes over again. And so, anyway, it's a long way of saying that I will never come down on the side of something that censors the expression of opinions in the name of calling it propaganda. But if you're foreign actors using money to lobby the government, that's not a form of opinion expression. Yes, I agree with that. And I mean, even on X, we have free speech here for the most part, which is wonderful. And it's and you can feel the difference, especially if you had a page before and now you have one now and you can you can feel the difference in how free people are to, to speak now. But you also see struggle sessions. You also see um, people really trying to impose their views on others, which is really sad. I know you only have about 10 more minutes, so I have two uh, people up here who are going to ask some questions, um, if, if that's okay with you, Vic. Absolutely. Great. All right. Uh, Liberty Lockpod, go ahead. Yeah, hey, Vivek, this is Clint Russell again, Liberty Lockdown. Good hey, to talk to you again. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've really enjoyed your campaign, and, and I think that uh, you've, you've brought a level of business acumen and, and intelligence that 
the GOP was desperately lacking. So as you can tell, because I'm buttering you up, I'm about to hit you with the harder questions. Uh, <laughs> I saw that coming. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to make sure that you knew. It, I'm, I'm not attempting to take your campaign here. I just think it's a very important question. Fair enough. Uh, you know, Ron Paul was very famous for having called out CIA blowback in his uh, in his debate. I think it was 07 against Rudy Giuliani. He just you know pointed out the fact that it was America intervention abroad that had ultimately led to a lot of enmity over the the world that had led to 9/11. Not to say we deserved it, but rather perhaps we should stop intervening. Well, the the most recent news is that Netanyahu had, in fact, been uh, funding Hamas and, and explicitly stating that it was their goal, as, as recently as 2019, to keep them in a position of power so that a two-state solution could never be uh, you know, successful and accepted on the global stage. I'm just curious, uh, where are you falling at? I know you're, you're usually on top of every topic, and this is a relatively recent one, but if, with knowing that, I, I, it makes me very hesitant to uh, be sending $10 billion as Congress is trying to pass right now, I think that they ought to deal with it on the, on their own. And that's my, that's my opinion. Well, Claire, let, me, well let, me just, let me just say something that's even more fundamental here, where you see a lot of hand-wringing here in the U.S., right? Look at what the neocons are saying. Nikki Haley screeching something to the effect of, finish them, finish them, as though it's reciting a Mortal Kombat slogan. <laughs> Mike Pence saying, just do it, just do it, like a Nike advertiser. And, and, you know, you go down the list, just level them, Lindsey Graham. Dan Crenshaw, the war to end all wars, forgetting that that was World War One, and then World War Two came along. So you hear a lot of the slogans, and yet, and yet, for all of the hand-wringing about supporting Israel, and I, I, of course, recognize that Israel is an important U.S. ally, most important ally in the Middle East, and further, that what happened to Israel was just downright wrong. That was barbaric and, and a heinous act and deserves to be condemned. Nonetheless, it's incoherent to talk about what the U.S. is going to do in support of Israel without Israel itself having identified what its objective actually is. It's interesting. When you just take a step back and with cooler heads here, just ask, even if you could, you could debate whether, you know, you'll probably have people in this spaces that are on different sides of whether the U.S. should support Israel or to what extent. But put that to one side. Can you hear me, by the way, Clint? Just making sure. I, I can hear you. Clint, can you hear the you can hear me? Okay, got it. Got yeah, it. yeah. Sorry. Okay. I, heard, I, heard a, I heard a sound, so mm -hmm. I just was making sure. Okay. So... So wherever you come out on the side of, you know, the degree of U.S. support or whatever, there's just a fundamental logical question. If the U.S. is to support Israel to victory, what does victory even mean for Israel, right? And so you think about the purposeful seeming vagueness of that question in the American discourse. It seems like there's a fundamental question that is yet to itself be answered. So I have, I, you know, I mean, we could, uh, we only have... You know, about five, six minutes left. I want to get to a couple more questions. But before we pontificate on all of the different scenarios, right, we don't yet know what, if any, degree of involvement Iran had or otherwise. Before we get to any of those questions, it does seem to me like a lot of histrionics and hand-wringing amongst U.S. politicians, especially the likes of Lindsey Graham, who are effectively drumming the beatings of war to potentially bomb Iran or whatever he's subtly or not so subtly calling for before we even have information on Iran's level of involvement, that 
it's hand-wringing to say that we want to help Israel before we know what Israel's own stated objectives are. Is it to actually own and take over? Is it to, to annex and take over Gaza? Is it to have somebody else in charge of Gaza? Is it the PA? Those are all undesirable solutions for Israel, at least they have been in the past. And I think that that clarity is a precondition for even having the debate about what the level of U.S. involvement should be. And I think that that's just one example of a table stakes question that has not yet been answered, that needs to be answered before we can even have a legitimate policy debate in the United States. And I'm ashamed of a lot of the conservatives or so-called conservatives or, you know, more like Dick Cheney style neocons that are jumping to the conclusions about what the U.S. should or shouldn't do without having the basic question of what Israel's own stated objectives actually even are. Well, I would take it one step further and say we also need to know, you know, what what was the reason for over six hours of no response in a, in a country, you know, about the size of New Jersey? It, there's just a lot of variables. And, and my concern is that we were caught up in this same sort of bloodless fury right after 9-11. And, and because we were led astray, we ended up killing a whole whole shitload of innocent people and i would just like to avoid that if we can um but i, I appreciate your two, two really good points you just made right there so i mean in some ways maybe i will just repeat what you said but i think it's important enough that it's worth putting a fine point on it we made our worst foreign policy mistakes of this century in the wake of a knee-jerk response to a catastrophe so what would a true friend do? You would tell your friend in Israel the learnings from our own experience. 25 years of no-win wars in places, nearly 25, for 20-plus in Iraq to Afghanistan. We made those mistakes in response to 9-11 in this country. So we shouldn't want to make that mistake again, and we shouldn't want friends to make similar mistakes in the heat of the moment as well. And then, yes, you, you do raise an interesting you know, question that I think merits getting to the bottom of. It's not a question for later. I think it's a question for now. Why exactly did that intelligence and defense failure happen? How could it possibly have happened before a discussion about using that same apparatus to do whatever the next thing is? How did that happen? That's not a question for later. That is a question for now. And I do think that a lot of the people who are eager to rush to what the next steps are going to be, the fact that they're so ready to do it over unanswered questions without having the answers to basic questions, like how the intelligence failure and defense failure even happened in the first place, to what Israel's own stated objectives even are, that's really the, the true question. Those are at least basic table stakes questions that I think are very reasonable to ask and to have answered before we have a legitimate policy debate in this country about what, if anything, to do next. Thank you, Clint. I, I, I have to jump over to Wall Street and then Rabbits because Vivek's got to get out of here. Uh, of course. I just wanted to say thank you, Vivek, for answering that. Truthfully, uh, I appreciate your candor. All right. Thank, thank you. you All right. Uh, Wall Street, go ahead. I, I'm sorry if I'm late. This has already been asked. But um, the Biden administration is now asking for a $100 billion, This came out a few hours ago. Is asking for $100 billion dollars. And it seems to be sort of a, a catch-all money for Israel, money for Ukraine, a little money for the border, a little some earmarks for everyone to buy votes. I just wanted to know, have you, have you read it? And do you have any opinions on, you know, I, I think we all hate these things just being thrown together. But, you know, where do you come off in terms of funding each of these things? And, uh, you know, if you were hypothetically president or in charge? 
Yeah, so look, one of my basic procedural rules of the road is you don't bundle these things. That is a formula for, again, you're seeing a common theme here, evading actual debate. They don't want actual debate on the merits. They just want, they want us to shut up, sit down, and do as we're told, basically, when it comes to ramming through the agenda. And so one of the ways of silencing debates is the traditional tools of name-calling. Call somebody an isolationist or a racist or whatever, whatever gets the job done in whatever the environment is. That's one tool. Another tool is silencing dissent by avoiding even answering the basic questions like the ones that Clint was you know, discussing with me about how was the intelligence failure, what was behind that, what exactly accounted for that failure. Get to the bottom of that. No answer there. What is Israel's actual stated objective now? No answer there. Now, one of the other ways you then silence debate is confound the issues. So it's another trick in the playbook of avoiding a debate on the merits about whether these forms of foreign engagement, military engagement, and spending advance the American interest. So if you're taking a mishmash potpourri, both on these foreign policy questions, as well as foreign aid questions, as well as our own border, what you have is generally somebody who wants to fund one of those things that's not necessarily the same as the person who wants to fund the other one of those things. But each time somebody's desire to fund their pet issue overrides their distaste of funding somebody else's. It just works that way. It's sort of human or political nature is that you have your pet thing you want to get through. And while you don't love necessarily the other thing that's getting funded at the same time, it's your love of the thing that you want to see funded that overrides and gets to your objective of voting yes. And so that's the trick they're using to effectively get probably a number of propositions which wouldn't have enough support on their own right if they were debated individually to be able to combine them to make sure collectively all of them ram through. And that's the perverse result. So, you know, we could we could spend hours on the value proposition of each one. I've been very clear. I don't want to see further funding going to Ukraine. I've been very clear that I think that appropriately funding, but more importantly than funding, executing on our closing of our own borders in this country is essential. But by combining these things, the whole point is to sidestep debate on the merits. And that's the number one thing that would end on my watch. Every piece of spending is debated separately, especially when it comes to foreign aid, foreign policy or military engagement. Start with zero-based budgeting in every department, both domestic budgeting as well as foreign aid budgeting, as well as any other continuation of foreign aid relationships. We have to start with zero as the baseline and then ask ground up what's actually necessary instead of just rolling last year's budget and rolling it forward lazily as they are today. One step even lazier, combining a potpourri of four different spending items that really have nothing, should have nothing to do with each other, and yet which they're commingling precisely for the purpose of ramming them through. I, I, I believe in that um, position for sure. Thank you. And thank you, Silv. Uh, rabbit hole, last question. Cool. Thank you, Josie, for the platform and to Vivek for listening to a random bunny account. So um, my question is in regards to kind of cancel culture. I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said that in the wake of tragedy, you know, we kind of see a tightening of what's allowed to be discussed. Right. So yeah. uh, so I wanted to uh, touch on the recent um, conversation you had on X with Megan Kelly and Candace Owens, um, which essentially amounted to a debate on whether it's reasonable to blacklist. Uh, Hamas sympathizers from employment opportunities. So I just wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on cancel culture in this context? Is it necessary to give woke Harvard students a taste of their own medicine, or should we take a different approach in these situations? Look, I think it's a fair discussion to have. Uh, you say I hit the nail on the head. Thank you. I felt like a bunch of people hit a nail onto my head. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I took on the back of that. But I, I, 
you know, whenever I'm, I'm, you know, as roundly criticized as I was on the back of that comment that I made, my first impulse when somebody gives me a piece of criticism, you know, especially if it's somebody I, who I respect, and there are a number of people who I respect who are on the other side of me on this, my first impulse is to first ask, okay, is it true? Are they right? And I went through that here, and I still am at the same place that I was, which is that I just don't think it's the right thing in our country and in our culture when you have companies and CEOs going on the effective equivalent of a witch hunt, asking what students on a given college campus are vaguely affiliated with a student group that happened to have said something dumb about a political issue. I don't think it's good if it's coming from the left, and historically it has, and I don't think it's good if it's coming from a certain wing of the right either. I just think it is inherently bad for our culture. Now, many people responded to me by saying, well, does this mean that you think that CEOs should be forced to hire these people? Of course not. I'm not making a legal point at all. This is not a legal point. I said that in my post, but sometimes I think people have trouble, you know, reading. Dyslexia sets in mm-hmm. when emotions are high. But it's not a legal point that I'm making. It's a cultural point. Is, that, is, this, is this inherently good? Is this productive or not? And I think it's not. I don't think we want our college campuses at liberal arts colleges to censor their own speech and debate over students' fears of whether or not they'll be blacklisted. One step even worse than that, you know, what does it mean to be a member of a student group? I mean, I went to Harvard, but I know how it is at Harvard. I assume it's the same in other colleges. If you're, are you a member of a group if you're on their listserv? So if you're a student, before you sign up for being on an email distribution list, do you have to worry about what possible political declarations the leader of that group is going to co-sign? This completely chills the open exploration of ideas. And I say this as somebody who believes that those students are boneheaded, those student groups. They were boneheadedly wrong to make the obviously, I would say, misplaced statements that blamed Israel for an attack on Israel. That does not make any sense to me. And I'm dead set against it. But I think the right answer to bad speech is not less speech. It is more speech. And the other thing is you don't persuade people that way. I mean, think about this. You think that because somebody's afraid of expressing their opinion, somehow they're going to be persuaded. It's as, as though they become, uh, you know, it's like an equivalent of like a Stockholm syndrome treatment where you have to effectively scare somebody to fake it till they make it. No, I don't think that's the way we want to persuade people in this country either. And I normally have found myself making these arguments to the radical left in recent years, censoring what you can say on certain touchy issues from race to climate change. But now it's interesting that it feels a lot like the post-George Floyd moment. It feels a lot like post-9-11. And so in a certain sense, it's not a left-wing or a right-wing point. Post-9-11, there were certain things you couldn't say. Post-George Floyd, there were certain things you couldn't say about race in America. What would they say? Let's have an open conversation about race. They say that in a corporate boardroom. You know what that means? Shut up, sit down, and really toe the party line. That's not good for the country. I think that our country is at its best when people are allowed to express themselves. I think that unites us in the long run, even if in the short run it creates more debate. Debate isn't a bad thing. And so my view is, though these people were wrong, and I took a question from a Palestinian, pro-Palestinian man at one of my you know, New Hampshire events just over the last week where he made a ridiculous statement comparing the prime minister of Israel to Hitler. I mean, this was offensive. I told him so to his face. I still agree that he has the right to say it, and not just even the legal right, but that he shouldn't be 
you know, on some permanent economic blacklist because he once said a stupid thing. Being violent, that's a different point. You're violating laws. But in this context, do the companies have the right to say they don't want to hire students who are a member of a particular student group? I'm a freedom-oriented person. I think absolutely the company has that right. But do I think that's a good show of leadership for our culture when we create blacklists of not only students who expressed a view, but students who affiliated themselves with a group who might have co-signed a statement that was boneheaded? I just don't think that that's the direction we want to go as a country. And I understand that a lot of people were coming from a place of understandable hurt with what happened with the, in Israel. And I'm actually fully confident that a lot of those people who think they disagree with me on this today, once in the fullness of time, I would say minds clear up a little bit, will come back around to agreeing with me on this one. And you know what? I'm not a partisan hack. And so I think this was, for among the things I've said, less popular amongst Republicans than it were among non-Republicans. I... Uh, I really don't care, to be honest with you. I'm going to stick to my principles. And that's, you know, I've said this is the start of the race. I'd rather speak the truth at every step and lose this race than to somehow win by playing some carefully crafted game of political snakes and ladders. And I can't tell you the number of people who reached out privately to say they agree with me, but who were unwilling to say so in public that, you know, I my bet is in this whole campaign that that, that is going to be the winning political strategy, that that will be rewarded but either way, that's the only way that I know how to do it. So, Josie, I appreciate you having me. Um, thanks for you know letting me join for this first forty-five minutes. I know you may be going uh, a little longer, but, um, but I, appreciate I appreciate the you chance there. for you to welcoming me. Absolutely, I just, I know you got to head out. So, thank you so much for joining me tonight, Vivek. Um, how can people find you and support you? Go to uh, Vivek2024.com. And, you know, I'll be very frank about this. I, I think we have a very clear path to success here. I really do. It's it's by no means uh, a straight path, but I think that there's a real path to my being your next president. I think many people with strong libertarian-oriented instincts or agree on our policies on avoiding World War III have resigned themselves to throwing their hands in the air and say, you know, have a, you know, have a Rand or Ron Paul figure that moves the term of the debate, and, you know, that's the best we can hope for. No, I think with me here, we really have a chance of putting somebody in the White House that will govern accordingly with these values to our core. And I think part of the problem in both political parties is this is the super PAC primary. I mean, this is a, this is a joke. The campaigns of the other Republican candidates, they're not really the ones spending the money or doing the work. It's all done by the super PACs. And the reason that I'm not playing that game is that would stop me from adopting most of the views that I've just shared on this call, on this Twitter space. Mm -hmm. And so I'm at this point not shy in asking people to help us from a grassroots perspective. If it's a dollar, let it be a dollar. If it's more than that, let it be more than that. If it's not money and it's volunteering time, we'll take that too. But this is going to have to be a grassroots uprising to put me in a position to do what we volunteer to do for this country, which is to restore an American, pro-American agenda while keeping us out of World War III and shutting down the administrative state. And if that sounds good to you, then... Yeah, I'll ask you to do your part and support or volunteer in whatever way you can. And uh, my family and I, you have a commitment. We're going to do our part. And, uh, you know, we're grateful for you guys for doing yours, if, if that aligns with you. So thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thank you. This conversation for World War III was imperative. And I think your goals for our country are necessary and over the target and honestly clear and almost the simplest answer. I wish you the best in your presidential candidacy. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, everyone, uh, you can stick around here for discussion, but I do encourage you to head over to YouTube for Timcast IRL. Uh, so 
make your choice. And uh, if you want to stay here for a discussion, I'd love to uh, get some speakers up here. All right, so I'm going to add a few. Uh, Clint, Rabbit Hole and Wall Street, would you like to stay on as panel? I can stay on for a little bit. I got a show in about 25, so yeah, that uh, sounds... I'll hang up for a bit. Yep, perfect. That sounds good for me, too. 25 yeah, minutes. I can stay. Cool. All right, great. And I know, Rabbit, you got to go in about 15 minutes. Okay, let's see. So, yep. yeah. All right, cool. So, we'll do like a, a little like 20, 20 minute thing. I love it. All right, I'm going to bring up some speakers. Well, while you do that, I just wanted to say, um, you know, it takes some real fucking cojones to, <laughs> to actually call out the security failure, failures of the IDF and the Netanyahu, uh, you know, government. And I was stunned that he was willing, uh, you know, I, I'm constantly I'm like a velociraptor testing the fence of a politician's, uh, you know, truthfulness. And the fact that he was willing to answer that, answer that honestly blew my mind. So <laughs> cheers to him. Absolutely. All right. Let's see. Uh, Jethro, go ahead. Hi, Josie. Hi. Uh, thanks for calling me up. I was going to ask a question to Vivek mm -hmm. and, you know, thank him for speaking truth and stuff. But I guess I'll just ask this question to everybody else. Uh, with the Israel conflict, I recently rewatched Dave Smith's 2017 comedy special, Libertas. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering what people think of Dave's solution of moving Israel to Canada. Thank you. You know what's funny? The Articles of the Confederation, it actually said in there that, I think it was the 11th article, that... Um, Canada had the option of moving into the United States. So I thought that that was interesting. So, I mean, if it's the 51st state and they want to combine things, they want to go back to the, they want to go back to the articles of the Confederation, then, hey, you know, I'm all for this crazy puzzle, but uh, I'd rather not support Israel or Canada personally. Reasonable take. <laughs> yeah. I, I just think people need to hear that meme more of, the Zionists can have their place if they want, but putting it in the Middle East guarantees endless war just as much as the Federal Reserve guarantees endless war. So, yeah, Absolutely. thank you. Agree with that. All right, Amy, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to say that I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually on the side of Israel, but I'm not on the side of us um, putting boots on the ground or giving a bunch of money there. Mm -hmm. I feel that we don't need to be the world police. And I feel that if we get involved in this kind of conflict, we are going to find ourselves in a place where we do not want to be and where it is not a good idea. And that's kind of where I came into the Libertarian Party um, probably about 20 years ago, seeing us go into some of these regime change um, conflicts. Um, but I think that we can support, um, I think we can support Israel without causing World War Three. Supporting Not their right to defense or supporting right, them financially? Su supporting them, supporting their right, supporting their right to defend themselves against Hamas, which if you read their charter, um, you'll find their charter basically is a screed about having Jews behind every rocks and trees and how they want to like get rid of Israel because they have no right to be on 
land that was conquered by Muslims. And it's a very religious extremist type of document. Mm -hmm. And to have a freedom-loving people who are, can I say normal, like (laughs) normal people, who are being um, attacked by terrorists, I think they have every right to defend themselves. But I also think that we can support them strongly without, you know, pulling ourselves into World War III, which I think would happen if we put boots on the ground. And I just wonder what people think about that particular aspect, because I have heard that the Biden administration has um, asked for a couple thousand troops uh, to go into the area. Yeah, they're all in the Mediterranean right now, so they are definitely encroaching towards World War III for sure. Uh, we will end up having boots on the ground there, absolutely. Um, and I, I wish that I could say that that wasn't the case, but it's it's the case because this is what they want. So sadly, uh, thank you for your question, Amy. Sorry, it's it's uh, we we're gonna get into a war. We're gonna get boots on the ground. Unfortunately, they they love you. They they love Israel more than they love Ukraine for sure. I mean, a- Amy never clarified what she means by support. I think I think the vast majority of people support anyone's right to self-defense, particularly libertarians. Of course we do. But the, the question is, are you advising financial support? Are you advising munitions? Are you advising, uh, you know, troops as deterrents that are sitting in the Mediterranean as we speak, in, including strike groups? My, my answer is I want to give them nothing other than, hey, defend yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Literally those words. That's it. Um, so, Amy, if you could just clarify, are you saying we should go further than that or not? Yeah, I'm thinking that we should not be. And I think this is actually what is causing the problem with the Speaker of the House vote right now is the $100 billion spending plan that's being proposed right now. Um, And I oppose that spending plan just as, you know, we we're killing ourselves. And just like, you know, you can't go on an airplane and... You, you're supposed to put your own oxygen mask on first before you help a child or someone else. We're literally killing ourselves by, like, spending ourselves, creating all of this, you know, money that we're giving out abroad without protecting our own borders. So I strongly oppose the new spending bill that's uh, that is coming out. Mm-hmm. I think that our support really needs to be... Um, ideological because we support people who defend themselves against terror but i don't think it should be like giving all of, giving more money that we don't have and putting boots on the ground I, I don't so i think that your position is essentially a libertarian position you're there for them you know in spirit but doesn't don't want to be there for them financially or with the blood of our children Right. I think that's that's pretty much my thing, because I think that they are actually in the right in this conflict against terror. Um, But I don't think that we really need to be the world police. Yes, you're right. Thank you, Amy. I I think that we're all on the same page with that. Um, Let me see. Peter, go ahead. Hey, thanks for having me up. Absolutely. Uh, I come from the perspective of uh, this was all planned and by design. Uh, I think 9-11 is in the same vein. It was planned and it was allowed to happen. And this is the same type of thing. Like, Riddick's question is so poignant. 
how did this happen? How did the greatest security apparatus that monitors all of its citizens' communication, knows everything that they're doing at all times, literally has a, a, a virtual dragnet that is constantly taking information, the, the greatest technology, uh, advanced weapon systems. How did, how did this happen? And, and, and for me, the simplest answer is the answer, right? They allowed this to happen so they mm -hmm. can go in, clear out the area, annex it, and permanently relocate these uh, people from Gaza in different parts of the EU and even the United States. The United States is inviting this to happen by leaving the border open. Uh, they're, we're giving away everything to anybody who comes in the country. Nobody says boo about it. Everybody just keeps paying taxes and just watches the, the football game on Monday, Thursday, and Sunday, or whatever else that they're involved in, Taylor Swift nonsense. Mm -hmm. uh, so this, for me, is just another part of the plan. Well, yeah, it's, it's very similar to what they did, you know, with the fall of the Roman Empire, and they entertained, you know, bread and circuses. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. So until people begin to wake up, um, I don't know what good it is to have a libertarian position saying, defend yourself. These guys are well-equipped to defend themselves. They have tactical nuclear weapons. They have one of the most advanced bio-weapons programs in the face of the planet. Uh, these guys know how to take care of themselves. And I always go back to the axiom of might makes right. You know, it, th this is the world that we live in. I don't think it's ever going to change. I don't think you're ever going to see a world where the strong person submits to the will of the weak person. It's never going to happen, ever, until, I don't even know, we go into the next dimension. So I think... Well, it, 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 to some extent, it has been happening with the woke. I mean, it's not like any of the Antifa people could take you in a street fight, but they still seem to be running... <laughs> running rampant well they're just the brown shirts right that those are the brown shirts that that soften everybody else up but uh, there there is a, a law enforcement response look what happened with j6 right so as long as you're on the right side you don't get the response but if you're on the wrong side you get a heavy-handed fbi guys are getting 20-year terms true uh, yeah, you got to be man. if you're if you're on the side of the state. Yeah, I agree. And look, if you've looked through my feed, I have not been posting, you know, stand with Israel or Israel has a right to defend itself. Like these are these are platitudes that are unnecessary in this moment. Uh, you know, Daniel McAdams, uh, Ron Paul's co-host on the Liberty Report, he, he always says, "Don't do the bidding of the regime." And and as far as I can tell, the the point of the forty de decapitated baby story, uh, you know, the the pinning of the hospital destruction on Hamas, these are all narratives that are floated out early on that are unproven that are ultimately meant to galvanize the American people for intervention. So I will lend no hand in that process of of motivating the American people to want to intervene either financially or militarily. And uh, I think that's the best libertarian position. That's just my two cents. I agree with Appreciate you, Clint. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks mm -hmm. for having me up. Absolutely. Agree with you, Peter. All right. Uh, Tom, go ahead. Hey, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, I mean, I was going to ask you, Josie, um, do you think that there's actually anything anybody can really do to stop everything that is happening and it is going to happen? Um, you know, with it. So if Hamas just left and stopped everything would end but that's not going to happen so um i i think people just need to stay out of it let them handle it let things end naturally as naturally as they can but i also know that I'm talking, yeah i'm talking on more of a larger scale with everything going on in the world with everything you know with the great reset yeah. with the world's agenda and everything going on honestly with all the mm -hmm. with all the technology 
that, you know, the people who rule the world have today with AI, drones, everything else that they can do, you know. They want power and power wants more power and it corrupts absolutely. So, so honestly, what we're seeing, the people who want peace deals are like Russia and China who are brokering peace deals. I mean, they... They've, they've brokered all these peace deals. They've gotten people to join the BRICS alliance. Um, and they were working to broker one, you know, with Ukraine. And the U.S. is the one that gets in the way of all of those. So, you know, I'm not I'm not pro-Russia. I'm not pro-China. You know, let's get that out of the way, you know, before it's devolved well, China, to slander. China kinda, yeah, China kind of moves slow, like, you know, chess, you know. I mm-hmm. mean, it just, and, you know, all of their moves are really drawn out and yes. slow. But I definitely don't think that. They're they're they disempowering. <laughs> yeah, they're disempowering America by um, really devaluing the dollar. You know, moving away from uh, many countries are moving away from the dollar and towards the yen as opposed, you know, to to work well, with a different I mean, finance. Even Saudi Arabia was in talks to work with the yen, and Japan is. You know, so we're losing our own allies to the BRICS alliance. So it's alarming. I don't see a way to fix it because NATO really just wants to be the world police and rule the world. Yeah, I mean, even our own government is destroying our our country. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's I by think, design. You know, even personally. in the European Union. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, of course. Um, I, I think it's I think it's by design that they want to destroy this. Um, because they're going to have people begging for a fix once they've destroyed everything. They're going to have you know the same idiots who voted them into power begging for them to just fix it, just fix it, just make it better. And they're going to be like, oh well, we have this plan yeah. where we could just reset everything. How about that? Absolutely. And that's what it is. You create chaos and then, you know, then you can take over everything and implant more strict rules and just take away more of our freedoms and, you know, different things and have more control over everyone. And at the end of the day, that's the worst thing that can happen to the world, you know? Yes, it's demoralization, destabilization, crisis and normalization. So we're seeing it in action right now. So. Thank you for your question, Tom. Hmm? Oh. Yeah, let me let me just pin the, uh, spin this positively for a second. <laughs> I mean, I I'll, I'll grant you that you know the the Great Reset is is long in the tooth, and it does seem uh, to be insurmountable at times. But um, just to to white pill it, I think that there has never been an opportunity for average people to reach more people in terms of you know expediting the the so called waking up process, not the Sam Harris version that fucks your brain up, but like the real one. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I'm a former entrepreneur that's now able to reach over 20 million people a month. Josie's a uh, homemaker mother of three that's able to reach a couple hundred million people a month. I mean, there, there is just a, a tremendous opportunity right now for those that are willing to tell the truth in this moment to, to reach a shitload of people and actually give us a fighting chance. So the uh, same thing I say on my show all the time. It's like, just tell the goddamn truth. Stop being afraid. We don't have any time for this bullshit. Just be real. And if you don't have a show, a platform, social media outlet outlet to do it just do it with your friends family co-workers just start telling the truth we need it now and we really don't have time to waste people uh, are i 100% agree with you but i mean at the end of the day at what point do you think there is a point where they can just shut all of us down i mean they kind of did it with covid I, I think that was a dry run for something bigger but i'm not sure i mean we will <laughs> we will always we will always outnumber these people so it, it's just a matter of like what what is our pain point at which we actually snap and i'm just trying to to you know prevent that snapping process because it's it would be very ugly so um i think you know because i'm a peaceful person i would like to keep it that way so i would just encourage everybody to speak out while they still can the fact that we can talk now openly about things that we weren't allowed to talk about in 2020 
on X, we can do that. Um, I think that, that that gives us hope for sure because as Vivek has said earlier, we weren't allowed to talk about these things. And if we could have talked about COVID, we would have been able to to expose it much sooner. And a lot of the atrocities that happened, the wealth transfer, all of the things that happened that were so bad would not have happened because we had speech and speech speech creates truth. Like speech is the pathway to truth. So we have we have speech now. And so we have that on our side. Yeah, and you know, I think that just doing the little bit of good that everybody can do themselves is probably the biggest empowerment of anybody. You know, just helping, you know, the homeless around wherever you are, just helping whoever you can help in life. And, um, you know, everybody does their little thing and uh, the world can get better. So I do believe that the world can get better. Thank you, Tom. All right, Joy, go ahead. Hi there. Can you hear me, Josie? Yes, I can. All right. Hey, thank you for having me on. Yeah, so I was um, looking, listening to several of these things uh, that you guys are talking about. And like, as far as helping Israel, it kind of reminded me of this thing called the Great Emu War that happened in Australia. And the, without getting into the history of it, the big takeaway is the government poured in a whole bunch of money in to fight these emus, which, which are just big birds, just big fatty birds that run around uh, that they're trying to get rid of. And they couldn't do it. They dumped all sorts of money into it. They couldn't do it. And then you just had, they just put a bounty out there for anyone who wants to kill an emu. And all of a sudden their emu plague was gone. So like the, the end result is like crowdsourced is better than crowdfunded. Um, so uh, how's that in relation to Israel? Well, I think about how hard would it be to for terrorists to come in to a, uh, I don't know, to a rave or something, if everyone is armed and knows how to use their guns. Uh, If if you actually allowed the people in Israel, if you didn't have such uh, strict requirements for for guns and basically made it maybe even mandatory that everyone has to be trained with a weapon and carry a weapon, as opposed to having us pour all this money in, uh, why not allow your people to be armed and have a, and create a culture where it's just normative and, and that uh, that equalizes things so uh, i guess uh, the kind of the that's the first half so so the, the more people have guns the less of an edge uh bad people have with guns have uh and in the same way and this is kind of the second part is the more people have encryption the less of an edge bad people with um analytics uh and encryption have uh, so, and why do I say encryption? Because I kind of think that that's where things are going, where people are asking, how in the world did, did the biggest surveillance apparatus, how did this sneak in? How did they, how were they able to get past the Israeli uh, surveillance state? And I think the, the takeaway that's going to come from this is, oh, we didn't have enough data. We need to get more data. We need to expand the surveillance state, just like they did with 9-11. We're going to expand this so that we can catch these people, because we didn't catch them this time. We'll definitely catch them next time, so long as you give us a little bit of your freedom for safety. Um, And so, like, I believe that, like, sort of negative fatalism is kind of worthless. We're like, oh, well, can we actually stop this? It's like, well, it doesn't do me any good to think that we can't stop it. So, like, I personally, I've joined a community of... um, of people it's called darrow project and what they're doing is they are building a way to arm people with strong encryption so that you can basically have like military grade nsa proof free markets um, military grade nsa proof um uh, messaging systems uh that are easy so that people with very little programming background can actually 
plug their own stores in and and if you give encryption to people mm-hmm. just like as if you give guns to people um it allows them to um uh it allows them to thrive and i think we need more free market forces and more um uh and and kind of to treat some of these things kind of with the kind of a libertarian ethos so yeah i mean daryl project i'll put a a, a little little yeah drop it in the comments yeah it's basically it's open source it's all volunteers you know it's not anything that people pay to to use or get into cool thank you joy i gotta get to the next question but i appreciate your pitch and you can drop information in the comments and people can go there and find more information sound great yeah wonderful all right thank you thank you all right uh ramen go ahead hi josie thank you for bringing me up um so just about my background i'm um Iranian, so uh, my parents came from Iran back in those times, mm-hmm. from Iran to Germany. So I'm born and raised in Germany, so I have the mentality of both sides, but moved to Dubai now. So I'm in the middle of the um, Gulf countries here, so I have a lot of impressions from left and right. I do have a lot of Jewish friends in Frankfurt, where I'm from. I do have a lot of German friends and, of course, a lot of uh, uh, Arab friends here and a lot of Iranian friends. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm. we have to say in the past few days, I did some stories on my Instagram profile and I have to say I had some bad arguments with close friends, with school friends, from which I know from since 20 years, mm-hmm. attacking me like because I did some posts about the bombing, about the... Mm-hmm. Um, the situation today with the hospital which which got bumped and my closest friends they're attacking me like how can you post this are you crazy yeah. are you like very bad words and i'm like guys are you seriously i didn't say anything about israel and i do have jewish friends i didn't mm-hmm. say anything about jews nothing i'm just about the fact that the whole country going to be erased Ramen, and i'm just concerned yes you are with your people right now just just to tell you like i was dogpiled uh, clint was dogpiled and it's not yeah. that you criticize um you're not you're not criticizing jewish people you're 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 criticizing the state in a time of war exactly. which everybody exactly. should everybody should do that if you see propaganda exactly. everything everybody propagandizes during a war every single every single state does your state is not above beyond any reproach it, they're not special they don't love you states will do what they need to do to move forward their agenda wow josie you sound like a, a josie you sound like a, a nazi sympathizing yeah. uh, terrorist sympathizing Holocaust I mean, I denying. Right yeah oh yeah definitely no. gotta keep how always... dare you <laughs> i will always question the state the state so, yes and i'm and i'm very uh, concerned about the situation because mm-hmm. i you heard about the, um, the the ships from the U.S. government, uh, uh, like near the Israeli. Um, yeah, coast. we worry. We worry to death. We have one Warhawk um, guy here, Lindsey Graham, who is all he wants to do. He's wanted to bomb Iran like since he came out of his mother. Like this guy's just wanted to bomb Iran forever. Um, all of the really leading Warhawks have wanted to do that. Uh, John Bolton was pitching uh, nuking, having Israel nuke Iran. And he, he's been doing that for, for years, too. So it's it's definitely this conflict. For some reason, they really want to get it into Iran. And, I mean, it's it's not something we want at all. But it's something America wants for whatever reason. May I? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Well, the thing with Iran is it's kind of a revenge thing 
it uh, it all goes back to Jimmy Carter. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, even thank you. Um, oh, oh. Sorry, I, never... I oh. think that I think you two can't hear each other. Um, pr prodigy, um, mute yourself for a minute. I'm gonna have Gaging finish um, talking, and then I'm gonna get to you. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Sorry, there was a that happens sometimes. All right, Gaging, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Okay, well, appreciating everything that's going on right now, Lindsey Graham has been a war hawk for a while, and uh, basically during the Clinton campaign, we used to go on bomb, 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 Iran. Mm -hmm. It even that. We go back to Jimmy Carter and even to the overthrow and instilling the Shah, uh, where rights of... Um, Peaceful Muslims at the time mm -hmm. were basically being shunted out. And when Jimmy Carter got involved, he started looking at humanitarian bullshit, is what I'm going to say about it, you know, mm -hmm. which really wasn't going on. You know, it, uh, the Iran uh, was basically uh, moving towards a first world country and very looking very prosperous. Mm -hmm. And, so, so your you idea know, is that uh, Iran is is revenge for Jimmy Carter, right? Iran is revenge yeah. from Jimmy Carter. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, yeah, Raman, I want to apologize yeah. for your. Um, I know what it feels like to have your friends turn on you for your ideas, or to smear you for your ideas, or to dehumanize you for your ideas. I've had all that happen. Uh, the best thing to do is to not take it personally. What they are doing, they are they are seeing things from their own scope, from their own dream, from their own vision. And what they see has nothing to do with you, okay? It's nothing you did to make them feel this way. And they are projecting their own self onto you, okay? So I know it hurts. I know it's hard. Just don't take it personally. And if you need to disassociate from them, sometimes that's the best thing to do when they, when they can't Thank you for your work. You. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Rahman. All right. Um, Prodigy. And then we're going to have to go. Um, so I just want to get to Prodigy as the last speaker. Okay, thanks. I'll try to be really quick. I just wanted to ask if you have any comment on how social media and news is changing the way that wars are fought and demonstrated to where side choosing was almost immediate from the news of the first attacks in Israel and Hamas. It's like, and like having no consequences if you are sided with the state, like somebody mentioned before. Mm -hmm. The same seems to be true here. Like you have to choose the side of Israel or you're in danger of being canceled. Isn't this dangerous to have one-sided ideas and beliefs yes. suppressed and even with the danger of consequences for having those beliefs? Yes, uh, I think Clint can answer that one really well, actually. Okay, awesome. Yeah. That was my comment. Uh, he had, yep. Go ahead. Clint. Oh, I'm sorry. That's I'm okay. sorry. What was the, what was the uh, question? About the dangers of cancel culture and it was what we talked about yesterday. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously, a, particularly in a time of, uh, you know, kind of a slow boil crisis. This isn't even really slow boil. This is like percolating at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we have to be able to oppose state narratives. This is exactly what transpired during COVID. They, they booted, you know, some of the most highly prestiged, you know, uh, cardiologists and pathologists. Like everybody that you should have been listening to was banned in that in that point in that moment and it was catastrophic and it was it was largely in hindsight we now know it was largely directed by the cdc fbi dhs a bunch of people um so yeah it's like 
the, the open dialogue and a point of crisis when everyone's trying to figure out what the hell's going on is mandatory. It's not optional. It's the entire reason free speech is so important. Um, so, yes, I, I, I do not believe in canceling people. I've seen a lot of people that I used to respect, like Dave Rubin, for instance, that are pushing for cancel culture very, very aggressively. And I have lost all respect for them, particularly given that he made his his bones traveling around the country in 2017, you know, really became a household name touring college campuses with the woke lunatics that were chasing him and Jordan off of campus. Now he turns around and wants anyone that's that's you know marching on behalf of a pro-Palestine, not, not a pro-Hamas rally, but just pro-Palestine, and he's endorsing state uh, sponsored, you know, shutdown orders for these these protests. It's fucking lunacy. These people are cowards. They have no principles. Sorry, I'll stop ranting, but <laughs> I take this shit really seriously, and I and I had respected these guys. So I hope people wake the fuck up. I don't know what it is about, like when it's your when it's your baby that gets struck. I don't know why Israel is his baby, but it is. When it's your baby that gets struck, all of a sudden, all of your principles go out the window. I think this is the time when we have to have you know uphold our principles as, as best as we can. Yes, that is the rant that I wanted to end this on. It's perfect. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I want to thank everybody for being here. I want to thank my speakers. I'm sorry we didn't get to y'all. Um, again, I encourage everybody to head over to Tim Kest IRL over on YouTube and uh, support our work over there. I do outside media and spaces through Tim Kest. And uh, yeah, I really love what I do. I, I'm thrilled that I could have Vivek on tonight to, to talk to all of us about such an important topic that is just so relevant and in affecting us all right now on just so many different levels and it's just it's just so great to be able to have this platform and and i mean talk to a presidential candidate just why not on the freaking internet you know it's just it's just wild every day's wild so i want to thank everybody again for being here and uh for supporting our work if you do for listening for chatting all of that you all are the best and remember that you are not your government you are an individual and do not ever conflate yourself with a government or a state Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Thanks, Clint. Thanks, Josie. Thank you, Josie. Thank you for that space. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Take care and take care of each other.